Thanks for listening to Bezier. Bezier is sponsored by Superhigh, online courses for code, design, and product management. Superhigh's courses can be done in your own home at your own pace. I've been a Superhigh student since 2017 and have gone from being a designer feeling alienated by the should designers code discourse to building my own sites and now even selling web design services. My favorite part of Superhigh is the community of learners. As a Superhigh student, you're added to this huge community of all the other Superhigh students. It's filled with inspiring people from all over the world in all different places in their careers. I've gotten work there, I found podcast guests there, and even made in-person friends, all because of Superhigh. It's easy to get started. There's an online code editor. You can do it on your own schedule. There's built-in community of learners. It's got everything you need. Start learning to code, design, or product manage today at superhigh.com. I'd like to have guests introduce themselves. Can you share a bit about yourself? I'm Neef. I'm a creative technologist and venture lead at Us2, which is a design studio headquartered here in London. And that is quite a fun title, I think, anyway. And it basically means I try to spend a lot of my time um, between coding, doing bits of design, and quite importantly, um, supporting Us2's community of small businesses that we've either started or have invested in which is something that the company has been doing for around five years now. But the company as a whole is uh, 15 years old, so kind of a newer part of the business. How long have you been there? I've been there for three years now. I think it was three years this month, in fact. Congratulations on the anniversary. When you started, were you involved in the venture stuff at all? Yeah, so well, I started kind of just as the venture stuff was being formalized as part of us two. Um, I think the founders have been making small investments here and there for a year or two um, through people that they'd met through just running the company generally. And I guess they decided they wanted to double down on doing that. And Adventure was born, which is um, the third arm of the business after the studio and the games team, which is now kind of responsible for all of that work. Um, and I joined right as that was becoming like a proper part of the group. I was teaching myself design at the time after a failed stint in the sciences and was always quite interested in startups and small businesses. So it seemed like quite a nice fit, actually, as someone who is really interested in design and kind of slowly getting better with that as a skill and someone who was just interested in small businesses and how to support them and how to run them. Um, so I joined kind of as a hybrid role doing some junior design work in the London studio and then also at the same time just helping build adventure kind of from the ground up. Um, we had like a small community of businesses, like a really small community of businesses that those two had started or invested in and a small co-working space in our studio as well that we just gave to part subsidized desk space to interesting businesses. So that was quite fun to just meet all these really cool companies, but also continue to develop the design skill that is something that um, I really wanted to do. I don't know of a lot of studios that have all of those different things going on. And you also mentioned your stint in sciences, which I want to hear about. But maybe before we get into that, could you share the pronouns that you use and a little bit about your life outside of work first? Well, yes, my pronouns are he and him. Uh, And outside of work, I guess currently I spend it uh, a lot just in my flat, um, as many people around the world are. But I like, I mean, I run a lot, which is um, a lot of my friends use that as a defining characteristic for me. I'm not sure if that means that my other characteristics are very boring or not. 
but yeah, I guess the jury's out. And as well as that, I've always been a huge film fan. I think that's one thing that I, I mean, I used to work in the cinema. I used to really wanted to go into the film industry until I realised how <laughs> terrible of an industry it was. And that's something that I think has stuck with me a lot. And one of the things I'm missing the most throughout lockdown is actually um, going to the cinema to watch movies. It used to be something I did um, every week or every other week. So I'd say that's a big part of my life. And otherwise, I've got um, two sisters who I love a lot and family based up in or close to Manchester, who I also miss a lot. And that's where I'm from. Um, so before moving to London, I, I was born and raised in a town called Warrington, which is a quite large town in the UK, but smaller than most cities, which is very close to Manchester. I think those are my main, like, my main, my main list of defining characteristics that I uh, always use. Oh, it was fantastic, and I appreciate you giving us a little pre and post quarantine context because I think it's hard to talk about your hobbies and interests right now when some of them you just can't do. So, yeah, to- totally, it's so weird. I mean, and actually, a lot of my um, hobbies and interests right now, which is something that I'm. It's kind of happened this way, but I'm not necessarily a huge fan of it, is that my hobbies are now more connected to my work than they ever have been. I'm just spending a lot of my personal time, which is good, I guess, from like a career perspective. I'm spending a lot of my personal time learning um, and doing more design and coding work for personal projects, um, which I've always done a bit, but it's always good to have, uh, I guess, a larger breadth of stuff that you do that isn't just so tied to your work so now I'm just spending evenings um, coding or something which is good in some ways but not so good in others yeah um so like I said I want to ask you more about your work but maybe you could talk about those personal projects if you feel comfortable sharing any of them even if they're not sort of public yet I'd love to hear about what you're working on because teaching yourself design and code and doing that sort of on the side is is something I think a lot of our listeners are interested in or doing themselves. So the current personal project that I'm working on is a AI um, bot that, um, and as some of some people might know Mills, who's one of the founders of us too. Um, he is, you know, kind of, he's a very interesting person to follow on Twitter. Uh, and it's a very, I'd call it a very unique writing style. Um, so I've, over the last week I've uh, trained an AI on his tweets um, and I'm turning it into a Slack bot for us to use Slack. And I'm going to try and put it on Twitter as well once they give me my uh, developer <laughs> account. So that's kind of the one thing that I've been working on a lot at the moment. And that's really fun because it requires a lot of, uh, like, I have to set up a server that can run the AI model. I've got to, like, set up these um, middleware functions that can, like, request the data and send them to things like Slack or Twitter. So that's, like, the current thing that's on my mind a lot. And that's just been quite interesting to learn. Other than that, um, most of my personal projects are just playing around with new technologies like... um, I'm a really big fan of WebGL. It's a way that you can render 3D objects on um, web browsers and on mobile browsers. And you can just all do all sorts of crazy stuff with it. And there's this like, really cool community online, um, especially on Twitter, of people that just do like really interesting stuff that a few years ago I would have never thought was possible it, on a web browser. I would have, would have thought you had to have like, custom um, hardware to do that. So I like exploring that technology a bit and just following all these guides and um, inspiration that I find on online. Um, and then there's one really 
big personal project that I've kind of been sitting on for two years that I basically bought the domain name for, which is a really good domain name, and I'm really happy that I bought it. But it's costing me £80 a year, and I really uh, have barely touched the project since. But it's hopefully going to be a, a free tool that helps people with food allergies travel um, to different countries with a bit more understanding and awareness of what they should be avoiding or not. Um, and I've kind of just got the designs done, but getting all the content for it is a quite a big task that I'm hoping to crowdsource at some point. But that's something that's kind of uh, I keep putting off, put that off for like two years now. Um, so those are kind of like the current projects. But even before that, I had done like small, tiny websites for friends, which is how I learned um, coding in the first place. Um, even just like a really simple one-pager um, can be something that you learn a, a lot from. Really excited about your side project about traveling with allergies because some people, when they start to tell me about their side projects, they're maybe less social good than that. And um, it's really nice to hear that you're literally building something to help people survive even. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's selfishly motivated too because I uh, have uh, a small handful of allergies to different foods and traveling is so difficult. Like going to different countries where um, you might not know what's in the local cuisine, you might not speak the local language, you don't really know what the what to look out for. There's been so many times when I've gone abroad and i've had like a allergic reaction to something so um hopefully it can help people but i also want it to be fun like the art direction that i've got in mind um for the site includes like some fun webgl elements um because i think why not make it interesting and engaging as well as informative which is probably why it's taken me so long to get it out there yeah, but it sounds like that's like the best way to do a project is to to have that intersection of like helping people being selfish, being exciting and interesting as well as informative and performant. And it's nice to have the balance of those things. And I think that it'll keep you maybe interested in it longer. Yeah, I think so. Or at least I'm hoping so. Because who knows, after <laughs> five years of owning this domain name and 400 pounds spent, I hope I'll have something out there. Can you tell us about your... What, what you called your failed science. What did you call that? Uh, a, br- a brief brief stint. I always thought I was going to be a scientist. My family is a big science family. My dad um, was a chemist and then moved into biotechnology. My oldest sister is a biologist. My older sister is a uh, biochemist. And I always thought I would follow their path. And I, I, yeah, I wanted to as well. I was really interested in science, um, specifically physics. So uh, I went and did a physics degree at university, which is why I moved to London in the first place, um, I think eight years ago now. And the degree, I have to say, I hated it. I really didn't like being in a room of, I think the course had 150 other people in it. So very little personal time um, with teachers and um, professors and stuff. And the whole format didn't really work for me. And that was kind of the beginning of like, "Mm, maybe this isn't quite right. But I still thought the subject matter was interesting, regardless of the university process not being good. So yeah, I dutifully finished the degree and which parts of it were definitely interesting. A lot of the subject matter was really cool. I got to learn all about space, which, you know, every, um, young person definitely has an interest in that I think or at least maybe I'm just speaking for myself 
but um, I did enjoy the stuff that I learned. And then my first job after um, that was working as a data scientist um, for a biotech company, working on genetic data sets. So um, some of the research was, for example, um, how can we use this huge, like, huge swathe of data that we have from all these DNA sequences that we've been doing for years and years and years to identify common patterns for, um, let's say, a certain type of cancer. Like, how could um, we track some of those mutations that happen where the end result, um, years and years away, is a cancerous tumour? How can we get like slightly earlier insights into what those early mutations are that might cause those? Um, which is really cool, right? It's like, oh, cancer research, DNA, sounds really cool. But in reality, it was like a boring graduate job where I was just sort of pulling um, data sets, running um, really, um, writing these really basic scripts in R um, and then running these computations and putting them back into the server. So while it was like thematically very cool, the process was quite dull. But mm. luckily for me, that was also when I started to realise that design is a really plays a really important part even if the work is very scientific like a lot of my the people I was working with um were you know scientists and data scientists and they kind of could intrinsically because they have the training understand like the how these probabilities work and what you know how DNA will you know split and divide and mutate and so on over generations but when I was trying to talk to people that aren't experts in the field about it um I kept coming against this wall of like um it's a really tough thing to get your head around even for me as well as a graduate um, but luckily visual communications here are really really important and accessible um, because dna is something that has a you know a very specific well-known shape it's often defined with colors for the n- nucleotides that is t's c's and g's and actually there's a lot of interesting motion into how it gets um, read so i think a lot of that idea around how can you visually communicate something that's quite sciencey that then led to me getting a really key, a much keener interest in design came from that first job. So while I guess it was a failed stint in the sciences in the sense of, I realized that it wasn't necessarily for me. I did kind of find a more um, appropriate path, I think through that. So I'm definitely grateful for the opportunity to do it um, because it led me away, away from it. Did you go right to us too, or was there something in between? In between, I started working at a company called Central Working, and they ran a small handful of co-working spaces in London. And I was there doing like operations and technology, so like project managing some um, things like their website rebuild and some technical infrastructure that they had in place, um, while also just helping run the locations. And that was uh, also, luckily, I guess, for my current job, is where I got a really keen interest in the world of startups and small businesses because you know I was seeing them every day. I was working for a company that housed them and, and did their best to support them. Um, all the while, I'd spent I was spending about a year um, there getting better at design, and I was fortunate enough to meet some people in the co-working spaces that really helped me along that journey, which was amazing. And then I guess by the time I was confident enough to kind of move into design, I had some of the foundational design knowledge and some experience and interest in um, the startup scene, which I found really useful. And luckily, um, it was really appropriate for what was going on at us two at the time. I love your nonlinear career path. Do you find that like every once in a while, your day to day, you like pull a skill that you use to 
during cancer research or DNA sequencing to your current job that you use? I mean, honestly, the answer is not as often as I would have people think. Um, loads of people think that, you know, the kind of stuff that I've done in the past, they think it adds this like overwhelming weight and like interesting angle to the work that I'm doing now. And I think maybe subconsciously that's the case. And yes, yeah, some of that foundation might lend itself towards just having a different take on a on a project. But in reality, the amount of times where I'm consciously like, ah, yes, this thing that I did all those years ago is directly related to this project uh, is very few and far between. Um, I think the things that I definitely use a lot now is just kind of generally, I guess I'm quite data literate which is something that uh, many designers are increasingly so. And I think it's a really important skill to hone, um, just be, being able to know like how to navigate um, data from things like A-B tests and user research in a more quantitative way. Um, as we're able to get more data now, I think that the skills to understand it are really important. So that's something that I think is a really useful skill that I'm thankful to have gained. Um, but apart from that, I don't think there's a, like, a direct correlation but i will still uh, entertain the idea that with it when people talk to me that they think i'm some sort of a dna design guru we had a data analyst on our design team at when i was at square and i it was so important to have somebody that was more data literate just to help us get a designed end result so it it's definitely a valuable skill that you have you explained adventure a little bit which i really appreciate what about us two can you Explain us to to someone who has no idea what it is. So I think the current description we have, which you could probably tell uh, can change quite often, is that us two is a design, technology, and venture studio. Um, and the company is yeah, 15 years old, as I mentioned earlier. And as the name would suggest, uh, it was founded by two best friends, Mills and Sinks. And they set out to create a design studio um, after having worked, known, after having known each other for years, and after having worked together for um, a couple of years at another agency, and in the beginning, a lot of the work that us two had did was, fortunately, um, at the time, fifteen years ago, um, very mobile centric. So I think uh, an example that many people might know is the Sony Ericsson um, phones back when feature phones were really popular. I think the W910i was like a really popular Sony Ericsson phone. So us two did a lot of the um, user interface design for that and a lot of like Sony Ericsson smart TVs um, and things like this. So like non-computer interfaces, which I guess put us two at the right place at the right time when things like um, iOS and Android started to hit the scene, where us two was one of the few um, agencies that had the skills to develop good mobile experiences for small screens. So I think that helped us to in the very beginnings, just totally by luck to propel itself in, as into one of the, I guess, more well-known names in what was slowly becoming digital product design as a field. And since then, um, us two has done quite a lot of core projects, actually. Uh, we're most famous for this game, uh, Monument Valley, um, which was launched, oh God, maybe six years ago now, um, which is a mobile puzzle game, which is heavily inspired by the... Um, drawings of MC Escher, the artist, where there's all these impossible shapes. Um, and there's also a really emotional story throughout the game as well. And that, I guess, was another really fortunate thing that those two did to, alongside working with uh, clients to develop and design um, digital products for them, 
Monument Valley was a real a moment of realization where I guess we looked at the success of it and were like, cool, we, you know, we have these skills in house and we can build amazing things. And like many other agencies, we want to make our own stuff as well. So after Monument Valley um, really validated that idea, we spun um, Games Off as a separate um, business under the US2 group, which um, then began um, and started making more games. And we've released a couple since then. And luckily for me, one of those other ways, of, I guess, of diversifying the portfolio that us two holds is also starting our own businesses. So Dice is probably the most popular one, which um, is really popular in the UK. It's a mobile ticketing app for gigs and concerts that is really well designed and really fair um, and is really heavily against things like um, ticket touting, for example. Um, and when that launched on the scene, it was really popular and that was a joint venture that we launched. And I guess slowly we started being like, okay, great. We can spin off new parts of us too. We can make these joint ventures. Why not just set up a whole investment arm, which is how Adventure began. Um, and in, in um, as far as the studios go, um, we've carried on um, just doing what I think is really amazing um, work for clients. So things like working with DeepMind, um, Google's AI uh, company subsidiary that is working on tools to help doctors um, identify um, if patients have, uh, I think in the case of the project we worked on, it was acute kidney injury. So how can a doctor get the data at the right time with good design that helps them make an informed decision without making a diagnosis for them? Which is, when you think about it, actually quite a big challenge. You've got to yeah. get all the data, you've got to pass it, which is what Google and DeepMind were very good at, but then creating the wrapper around that, which um, it's very design focused. Like how can you make sure that the notifications and even the copy that um, DeepMind uses helps people make the right decision at the right time. So these like fun, quite messy design challenges that often will use um, emerging technologies like AI um, or augmented and virtual reality um, are probably kind of where we do most of our work now. Wow, I mean, it, it sounds like it still intersects with a lot of your uh, your past your past life in science to talk about um, acute kidney identification and working with medical professionals again. Uh, yeah, I think so. Although I'm, I'm probably just choosing that one example because it's the most connected. Um, there are many examples also that aren't, but equally are interesting in their own ways. Yeah, definitely. I remember when Monument Valley first came out and was kind of surprised after I finished playing it to see that it was made by a design studio, um, especially a tech-focused one, as you mentioned, you know, working so much in mobile development. I think that there's sort of a, not a rift, but maybe a divide in the tech community where sort of game development is in its own sort of separate field. It's more like, I think a lot of, at least the San Francisco-centric tech field sees games as more of like the entertainment industry. But as I see more and more examples on a daily basis on Twitter of what designers are doing in gaming and 3D rendering and AR environments and VR technology, it seems more and more like a very high-tech field with a huge need for UX design what is it like to be at, you know, sort of the place that's one of the only sort of design studios I know about that's that's sort of bridging both the the industries? Uh, so first of all, you're, I think you're definitely totally right. 
A, you're definitely right about um, Silicon Valley looking down on another industry, which um, Silicon Valley is very good at. And B, you are totally right that um, there is now increasingly this intersection of these tools. Probably, unfortunately, the tech industry is now catching on because they realize there's a lot of um, more venture capital and money to be made um, from gaming, which is kind of the sad reality of a lot of these tech cycles and the hype that comes along with them. But fortunately, um, there are some really interesting outcomes that can be made from this, from a user perspective. And companies that I really respect, um, like Unity, the game engine, are really good um, at creating a lot of the tooling to attract um the sort of like these newer players who are more interested in looking at a game engine, for example, beyond the application of entertainment and into the application of, um, you know, how can augmented reality um, be deployed on a mobile device, for example, using um, Unity technology. So I, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic that that um, trend will continue in a, in a positive way in, in most cases. And in terms of what it's like working at those two while all this is going on, I, I just think it's really cool. Like, um, I don't really get to work on those projects because I, A, because I don't necessarily have the right skill set and B, because a lot of my time is tied up in uh, the venture side of things. But I think it's just amazing to see a lot of the really cool work that uh, we do. We've done a lot of work around self-driving cars and some of that has been how can we create like a 3D environment um, using gaming technology to sort of I guess, interact with, you know, let's say a road, for example, in VR. So that's a really fun example, I think, of where gaming technology can be used for like just a totally non-gaming, um, well, I guess it could be kind of gaming um, output. I think it's an interesting conversation to have around the the two industries and how you're at sort of the the heart of where they cross together and one of the only studios that's pursuing that it seems i i don't know do you do you feel like there's a larger space of like design and gaming coming together mm, yeah i think it's happening slowly and increasingly fast mostly honestly because the tooling um is just becoming more blurry so unity the game engine that i mentioned um is now just being used for so much more than gaming um so for example a lot of people i mean all of the developers, for example, in Buzzfeed Games, who make games, will be um, using Unity to make their games. But now, increasingly, a lot of people in our studio business, where we work for clients, um, are using Unity to create prototypes and products um, that likely we wouldn't have been able to do a few years ago. Um, so the skill set of game making is becoming broader, which is a trend that I'm uh, really excited by. Yeah, I'm excited about it too. And I imagine a lot of people are. If if someone wanted to learn more about Unity, like, what do you recommend? Is there a sort of a place that you've learned anything about how to interact with it? So actually, Unity's website, I think, I can't remember the what it's called, but if you um, search online for Unity Learn, they've got really amazing beginner documentation where they walk you through every step of setting up um, a, a first-person shooter game or a um, side-scrolling action game, for example. They've got various categories, and you can just go in and, dive straight in and um, download the example code that they have. It's one of the best like documentation sites that I've come across. Um, so I'd, I'd actually start just there. Ooh, that's fantastic advice. I'm going to check that out for sure. So you said, correct me if I'm wrong, your job title was creative technologist and venture lead. 
Yes, that's kind of the job title I've, I've created for myself because uh, in the adventure part of the business, uh, there's just two people. It's me and my boss, Justin. Um, so fortunately, that means I can call myself what I want. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. What does your typical day look like working at Adventure as a venture lead slash creative technologist? No, this is a good question, actually. It changes quite a lot and it comes in cycles. I mean, a lot of my work is very project based. Um, so before um, lockdown happened, my main project was actually setting up a brand new mentorship and support scheme at Adventure called First Mile, um, which has been postponed um, for now. But that was taking up a lot of my time and the early creative technologist side of things there was really just designing and building the website for it. Um, but the majority of the work was setting up the whole structure for the course and the program. Um, and what it is, is it first mile is a 12 months program for a very small group, maybe up to four, um, very early stage creative businesses. And we would match them with mentors from us two and us two's community of investments um, and other companies that we know really well. And over that 12 months, we would give these companies £10,000 as a, um, not as an investment, as a, a grant where there's agreement that they pay it forwards to the next people on the program at the end um, within a handful of years. And over that time, we really get to know them and take care of them and support them. And that for me was a reaction to, um, you know, you might be able to tell from before that I'm not a huge fan of Silicon Valley in the way they like to do things or, or the culture that they tend to um, impose on, on businesses. Um, and a lot of this startup mentality that's kind of invaded the world is coming from Silicon Valley, Valley's move fast and break things ideology where, you know, the way that most small businesses get a kickstart is through uh, what's known as an accelerator program. And I think the problem for me is in the name, accelerator. If you're trying to build a company that is going to be making meaningful impacts and you really want to take the care necessary to craft a beautiful product or project, I think accelerating your business is maybe not the best approach. And, you know, at us two, we take, put a lot of care into project work um, and creativity takes time. And I think it's fine to accept that. So I created First Mile as a, I guess there's a reaction to this accelerator mindset to show people that it's fine to take time. Um, it's fine to take 12 months as opposed to like a, a three month accelerator program to really hone your craft, hone your product, hone your business and embed a proper culture from the start and not as an afterthought. I think a lot of the problems that we see um, in the tech startup world with companies like WeWork or Uber, for example, um, stem from the speed at which those companies have to grow to meet investor demands, um, for example. So the hope was that First Mile could play a very, very small part in um, going against the grain. So in terms of what my day looked like, a lot of it was just program creation and research and interviews to try and craft a different program, which was very new to me, actually. Um, so not so much on the creative technologist side, but more just on the venture side, which um, was a nice break. But equally before that, I've been on projects um, like doing the new art direction and design for adventure. There's a sub arm of us two a couple of years ago where um, for months I was just doing designing and coding. Currently I'm seconded onto us two's central marketing team to help them create some assets and help with uh, some upcoming um, design work for us two itself, which is really exciting. 
Um, that's all really exciting. I, I think that I, I imagine you already know, but you're in a really unique position because one, there's so few venture firms, as you said, that are focused on sort of the ethical side of it and building good quality, sustainable businesses rather than profit over everything else. So you're already sort of in this very small world of positive net good venture firms, but you're also like doing design work and design focused. And there's also only a handful of sort of VCs and investor groups that are design first and design forward founders. So you're in this really niche space. I'd imagine that gives you a lot of sort of uh, exciting business opportunities to, I don't know, just craft like quality experiences in the investing world and to help your portfolio companies do the same. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, I'm very fortunate to work at a place that is quite niche, but it also does come with a lot of difficulties. Um, one of the reasons why we're a small player in the venture game is because we don't have anywhere near as much money as a VC firm would have. You know, they're, they're working with you know tens or hundreds of millions, for example, to invest. Whereas us two, we've got a budget of like a few hundred thousand pounds a year to invest in businesses. So the scale at which we can really make an impact is small, um, which is why we really want to maximize the non-financial impact that we can make. And a lot of the design uh, and venture combination can also be quite difficult to manage because at the same time that we have all these skills, we are trying to be a sustainable business ourselves. So it can sometimes be difficult to um, kind of take time away from other parts of the group um, and then put them into a new venture when we need to be sustainable ourselves and have people in the studios working on client work, for example. And that's something that a few years ago we um, really struggled with finding the right balance of how to integrate these parts of the company together in a meaningful way where you know people have opportunities to learn skills, contribute to a totally different project at a different scale and pace, uh, but also continue to contribute to us too so we can continue to grow. Um, and I think over the last few years we've slowly gotten better at that, but there's still a lot more work to do. Um, and I think that's kind of one of the downsides of being such a broad business um, is that it can sometimes be hard to leverage that breadth in, in, a, in a positive way. Yeah, I think that, as you said, that maybe you have a, a more limited impact because you have less sort of uh, bankroll. I think that you're probably attracting founders that are looking for a venture firm that can offer those non-financial benefits that that you offer. And I think that it's more valuable that you offer those rather than just like buckets of money. Yeah, we, we think so, totally. Um, but having buckets of money would then help us do that more. Um, uh, but this is like a big conversation that we, we have quite frequently. It's like if we, if we don't have the most money, or I mean, not even the most, if we don't have a lot of money, you know, how else can we maximize impact? And yeah, often that is through um, design support and mentorship um, and even like just small moments of people's time to give feedback on things. Um, but at the same time, um, we want to find other ways that we can support as well. Um, and even launching more of our own businesses is something that we'd like to do in the future. So some of the learnings we make from Adventure could help us when it comes to um, what the next project that might become something like DICE for example. So crafting all of this stuff together, all these potential outcomes, it's like hopefully we want to have a, 
um, a sustainable business model for adventure where it can continue to make money and cover its costs and continue to invest in new businesses. We also want adventure to act as a opportunity for people across the rest of us to, to learn about what it's like um, supporting and working in startups to learn what their priorities are, which are very different from the typically big clients that we work with. Um, and then adventure also should serve as an opportunity for us to as an organization to learn more about um, the venture scene so that we can think about how we can meaningfully do something that isn't an investment, but is tightly coupled to um, the startup world, like a new business. So there's a lot of these agendas that are floating around that we try to have to um, optimize for. But at the end of the day, it's a lot of fun just trying to do all this like kind of mildly disjointed work um, for, on the whole, what I think is quite a good um, a company that has very strong positive values. Well, I admire a lot what you're doing and really how nimble and flexible you and your team are to to be so willing to like create new businesses and spin them out into different arms of your company, I think is something that most businesses struggle to do and see those opportunities for what they are. So I, I'm super impressed. And I think it's like a really nice North Star for a lot of studios like my own to just like focus on being flexible to change. Thanks. I mean, it definitely has been hard for us as well. Um, I'm definitely glossing over, as any company would uh, or anyone would, I'm definitely glossing over some of the more difficult parts. Like, um, um, sure, yeah. But, you know, I think the difficulties are also opportunities to learn. So next time we can do it better. What's some advice that you have for someone that's just starting out either in the creative field or maybe more specifically because you're in sort of this unique position of, of like a creative founder that is starting their own business? I'll try to um, give some advice to both. So for creative founders, I think my top bit of advice is that um, it's totally fine to go against the grain. I think the system that is set up to enable these businesses to grow and thrive and um, and become larger, go from being a startup to a big company, is a system that usually does not reward creativity. You have to be formulaic. You have to pattern match for your investors. You have to um, be very metrics and growth oriented. And every process of that game, I guess, is a process where often times you'll have to make compromises as to your the impact that you want to make. And I think we see this loads with many businesses that are now um, quite big. So I would say that it's very important to take the time to, to get things right. Um, and you, you totally should. But that is a very optimistic thing for me to say because you, a business needs money to survive, right? And you often will need to take investment. Um, but my advice is don't do that until you absolutely need to so that you can spend more time on being creative because the fundraising life cycle will take up so much time. Um, if, uh, if any listeners are interested in that topic specifically, if you go to... Um, Adventure, as to Adventure's Twitter account. Recently, we tweeted out a lot of resources that uh, initially were for our first mile program and the people on it, uh, but we've made them all public now. So there's a link there to a handful of resources. Many of them are about that specific topic. Um, the fundraising process, a lot of the realities to it, and how you might be able to um, better spend your time as a creative entrepreneur. And then my advice to people just starting out in the creative field more broadly, I would say that um, 
I think you just need to try everything and experiment. I think the days, I mean, I, I would say this because it serves me quite well because I think I'm, I have um, a few skills or rather um, I have a broad range of skills, but I'm not particularly amazing at any one of them. Um, I think, especially at the beginning of your career, it's really important to cast a really wide net and don't be afraid to try things that are really heavily outside of the your current sphere of um, skill. So for, for a designer, I think increasingly it will be really important to have a deep understanding of how AI works um, and how you can design experiences for it. I think it also will be incredibly important in the future to understand, as we were saying earlier, like how 3D modeling um, could really play an important part in your design. And I think it's also really important to look at graphic design practices, um, if you're a digital designer, to really understand some of the heritage of where things are. Um, a lot of the people that are in the design fields that you know, typically I, I'm quite jealous of because they're really amazing at a specific thing, often um, are so focused on that one thing that um, they might not look around them to see what other points of inspiration there are. But I also appreciate and realise that those are the people that um, are very good at those things, right? So um, if you're a UI designer and you're an amazing UI designer, that's for a reason. Um, I just, I'm, I'm often jealous of them. <laughs> I think that's incredible advice and something that everybody should look at, not just people getting started, but maybe do you have different advice for people that have been in the creative field for a decade or longer? Honestly, you know, I, I, I myself haven't been in the field for um, a decade or longer. So I, I um, would hesitate to give any advice to people who have been in the field for longer than me. Um, that is not different. Or I'd probably just give them the same advice that I would to someone who's starting out because I think I need a bit more experience um, to that level before I can meaningfully talk about what someone else who has that much experience should do. I think your advice is good for people of all levels. So definitely, I think people should look towards sort of how the field's evolving and getting outside of their their specific um, focus area, I guess I would say. Yeah. So there's a lot of great aspects to the creative communities, but there's also a lot of downsides, especially that we have our own problems of various bigotries like sexism and racism and transphobia and homophobia and ableism and all the isms we could really go on. How do you look at the bigotry specifically in our field and how to sort of resist it? So A, I think it's probably, I, I would say it's the biggest problem facing the design industry is, is this exact thing. Um, and I, I don't think that's an understatement. A lot of people do. Um, and I think businesses, you know, I've been part of so many different um, panel discussions on, on, on this topic. And, and my, my one bit of advice for um, companies who are thinking or trying to change uh, a lot of the bigotry that might exist in their organization, which, A, if you think there isn't any, then you're not very good at your job because any anyone can be bigoted and likely if you're in a company of 10 plus people, even that small, there will be um, moments of bigotry in your business or people that might hold um, biases, unconscious or otherwise. I think that one mistake that I see a lot is something that I experience a lot is that anyone in your business who is a minority in, in any sense of the word has to then become a um, 
I guess, a vanguard for inclusion. And this is something you can probably tell that I've had to face and, you know, and many people have to face a lot. And that I think can often be more alienating because the onus then shifts from the people who are in the positions of power onto the people who are facing um, discrimination. And I think there's a really um, important bit of context that where, you know, if you want to make change, you'd need to make those changes, yes, from the bottom up, but also from the top down. And you can't just offload responsibility onto changing massive structural problems to the people who face those problems on a day-to-day basis. I think allyship is probably, I mean, I'm saying allyship because the people in positions of power usually are not people facing these, uh, facing discrimination. So I think that allyship is something that doesn't exist anywhere near enough in the design industry and and likely in other industries. I just don't know them well enough. Um, That would be the thing that I um, would say is the most important facet of how we could try and solve this because it's a massive problem and people are so afraid to be allies. People are so afraid to um, put put themselves in the shoes of people who aren't like them, maybe because they actually don't care that much about the topic, which for in some cases is true, maybe because they're afraid of what they'll experience, which might also be true. Um, but so often in big companies and small companies alike, the onus is shifted onto the people facing discrimination to solve the problem. And that to me is a massive mistake. Absolutely. Do you find, and again, this kind of puts the ownership on you to, to, be the lead of inclusion, but do you find that you have this conversation with founders that come through Adventure? It's something that we talk to them a lot about. Most of the companies that we've invested in have very, like still very early days, to be honest with you. And it's a conversation that I find happens best when it slowly evolves. And I guess this comes back to sort of, you do want to be able to take your time so that you don't have to cut corners or make compromises when it comes to culture and inclusion, which which I think is a really important part of your culture. So personally, I don't really have hard conversations with founders about the topic, but through every stage of the journey with an investment that we make, um, we would bring it up and we would talk about it and we would ask them if they have any thoughts about it um, because it's the kind of thing that we're fortunate enough to be investing at a really early stage where, and in founders that, likely already are aware of the topic so that we can slowly and consistently have it on their radar as well as our radar. Um, so we've never had to have like a big conversation with a, a company um, when it's too late, for example. But that being said, um, not, not many of the companies that we've invested in have grown to a stage where they might be exhibiting signs of, of some of these problems. So something that I definitely want to keep a close eye on. Um, And I would like to um, give a a plug, I guess, to one company that we have invested in uh, called Seed and Spark, who are based in LA. And they're a really amazing company. Um, Most of what they do is a a crowdfunding platform for independent and and diverse filmmakers so that diverse voices can be seen and heard in the arts industry. But one thing they have also launched recently is a film platform for businesses where employees of a company can put themselves in the shoes of um, anyone who's different from them to really get an intimate experience through the medium of film of what it might be like to be in someone else's shoes. And I think that's a really powerful and quite different 
mechanism for achieving empathy than uh, you know unconscious bias training, um, which is also part of a solution, I think. But the more diverse you can be about how you approach the topic, the best the success rates will be. So Seed and Spark is a company that I, I really respect for putting themselves out there like that. I I really appreciate the plug. I will put Seed and Spark in the in the show notes. Who else should people know about? I mean, some of the people I respect the most in the industry. Um, one is Abadesi Osinsade, who um, she's also based in London, but has worked with companies like um, Product Hunt, and she has her own business where she helps companies with inclusion. And she has a podcast as well, Techish, uh, which I think is amazing. And she talks so often and so amazingly and so with so much experience and understanding of the topic at hand and importantly how nuanced it is because it is a very nuanced topic and everyone's experience of it will be different um even people who have very similar backgrounds and she can she often speaks um, very thoughtfully about that exact thing and i respect her opinion a lot and every time she talks i I, I listen with uh, i listen intently because i learn a lot from her um, so she's definitely the first person that comes to mind. I haven't heard of Techish. Uh, that's a good recommendation. I'm definitely going to check mm. it out. Yeah, you, you should definitely check it out. And and Seed and Spock's founder, actually, Emily, um, she has a Medium account where she writes a lot about the, this topic, mostly in, 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 or I guess more so in the film industry than in the tech industry in, in parts. But also I find it really interesting um, to read the posts that she wrote on Medium when... Um, they were around the time of launching this new product that helps businesses with um, empathy and inclusion. Um, I forget the name of it now, but it's like a, a really long, really thoughtful write-up of common problems that people face when dealing with inclusion in an organization. So Emily Best, um, the founder of Seed and Spark, I also um, look up to a lot. Oh, fantastic recommendations. Um, speaking of reading, what, what book do you think everybody should read? Oh, that's a good question. I'll tell you what, I've, I've not read at all since lockdown started. When, I, when we were going into lockdown, I was like, I'm going to read so much. This is going to be my time to read. And I guess coming back to what I was saying earlier about my lockdown personal time being spent too closely to my actual job, um, maybe that's resulted in me not reading much. But some historic reads that I really like, I mean, one of the best books or series of books that I read recently is um the three body problem uh, which is the name of the first book it's like a really hard sci-fi book written by Liu Cixin um who's a Chinese author and it's so good and so thought-provoking if you're a sci-fi fan I'd definitely recommend it it's um starts off during the backdrop of the Chinese cultural revolution um but then goes into present day and into the future and, and into the quite far future um, and covers humanity's first interactions with aliens. But it keeps tying a lot of these threads back to the rise of communism in China and the Chinese Cultural Revolution in these really interesting and nuanced ways. And that was a book that really stuck with me. Um, and I think probably and unfortunately it was the first um, sci-fi book that I'd read that wasn't from like a Western author. Um, so since then I've definitely made a really conscious effort to diversify um the books that i read but i think one of the books that stuck with me the most um is the drowned world by jg ballard 
Um, I found that a really good read. Um, it's quite, I think it was written in there. Oh God, probably going to get this wrong, but I think it was written in the sixties and it's about, um, you know, a one man's, uh, story in a world where, um, a huge climate related catastrophe has happened to the planet and it covers how humanity is getting by and this man's individual, uh, story throughout, which uh, I really like. I've always been intimidated by the length of the Through Body Problem series, and I also have not been able to really get into a lot of reading during uh, quarantine, but maybe after quarantine, I'll finally start reading that. Yeah, it's it's quite daunting. Uh, I started, I think I started reading the first one when the translations for the second two, or maybe the last one, hadn't come out yet. So it wasn't quite mm. apparent how long the series was. But yeah, they are very long. But I would highly recommend them. I'm definitely more of a fiction fan than a non-fiction fan, um, to be honest. So um, I can't really think of any non-fiction books that I would consider must-reads. No, that that's good. We Most of the recommendations so far on the show have been non-fiction, so it's nice to have some variety there, especially, as you said, nice. from non-Western sci-fi authors. <laughs> As someone who cares a lot about um, diversity and diversification, reading that book and realizing that that I'd never read any non-Western sci-fi before, I was like, wow. Um, so I guess these things can often sneak up on you without you um, realizing them or, or thinking about them. Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up for other people to maybe examine their reading habits because I'm with you. I think it's really important to hear from people outside your bubble. Totally. Although I guess like part of, part of it is still well within my bubble, like a sci-fi book. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess you've kind of, you've got to pick your battles uh, of where you really push the boat out. So I believe everyone should get paid for their time. So on this show, we share profits from the advertisers with all of the guests that have been on the show, um, present and future. Uh, are there other ways the listeners can support you? No. I mean, you know, if you want to follow me on various social media outlets, um, I'm Neef Raymond underscore on Twitter. Neef Raymond was taken by me years and years ago, but my account got blocked. Um, so the underscore, oh is a, yeah, the underscore is a, is a frequent reminder of um, my old blocked account. Um, I'm also Neefstagram on Instagram, which is a, a much better um, username, I think. But you can see Absolutely. kind of all of the... Yeah, I, I, I'm a much bigger fan of that. But you can see all of my um, various links on my website, which is neve.co, uh, and some of the work that I've um, been doing. So maybe just take a look at that if anyone is interested. Otherwise, yeah, just think about what I have said today and send me any messages or questions um, that you have in return. I think that is a payment. I, I really like when people reach out for support or to offer support. Um because I think it's very often that you might hear something or read something, but you think that the person on the other end of the um, earphones, for example, is like an unattainable uh, theoretical being that isn't actually real and you can't talk to. But uh, I actually really like it when people reach out. That's great. Yeah, everyone feel free to reach out to Neef. Is Twitter and, and Instagram and on your website the, the best places for people to reach out to you? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, I'll I, I do my best to reply to on any platform, but all of my um yeah various um, links and my email address and um, my my GitHub for for example uh, are on my website, so anyone can see it there. 
Perfect. We'll be linked in the show notes. Uh, Neef, thanks so much for being on Bezier. I really appreciate uh, your time. Your answers have been so great. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up? I, I was thinking really, I was thinking really heavily if there's any other plug that I want to make, but I think I've made all the ones that I that I wanted to. So that's it. Thanks so much for having me. This has been really fun. Bezier is a design interview podcast amplifying voices in our creative communities that don't already have large platforms and aren't working at big five tech companies. We focus on finding guests from all over the world and representative of as many of us as possible. If you have a great guest idea for Bezier, please email us at inquiry at zoct.studio. That's I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at Z-A-C-H-T dot studio.